I, I don't even think the stat is accurate, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> Three, two, one. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is January 26th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. What hat are you wearing today? I'm rocking the Florida Panthers right now. Yeah, uh, what? A hockey team. <laughs> that, that's a hockey team, Sarah. Yeah. Oh! Yes, yeah, I am. Particularly hockey mood. I wanted to feel like it was 1996 again for a variety of reasons, and they went to the Stanley Cup final in 1996 and got swept by the Colorado Avalanche. They're not. That's not the Seattle Kraken, so I don't care. Sorry. Yeah. Well, they were the Seattle Kraken of 1993, so, you know. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Every team was the Seattle Kraken of some year. At some point, yeah. Um, And from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. What about the original six? Were they all six of them were Kraken? I'm not sure I agree with you, Neil. 1918. (laughs) Look it up. Birth of the the NHL. Um, Hey, did you guys see over the weekend the the viral gymnastics floor routine? It, It seems like... Like every couple of years or every year, there's a gymnast from UCLA who has some like incredible, perfect floor routine. And then it everyone it's like in everyone's Twitter feeds for a weekend. So Nia Dennis did it last year and then she did it again this year. Last year, she had done a routine set to Beyonce that was amazing. And this year she had one with songs from Kendrick Lamar and Easy e and Dr. Dre. It was it was so good. First of all, I love it. I love watching gymnastics floor routines when the um, teammates are standing on the sideline like doing the routine with the athlete. That's my favorite thing. Second of all, can we just have the Olympics, please? I just want the Olympics. I I know it's in like a weird situation where some officials are saying it's not going to happen and some are pushing forward, but I just, I want Simone, I want a week of Simone Biles being amazing. That is all I want in my life. It's going to happen. Sarah, there's too much money involved for it to not happen. Yeah, we've learned nothing about sports. If not that, if there's a lot of money involved, they will happen. It's going to happen. And and, and, hey, a year from now, we have a Winter Olympics. I know. That's going to be weird. So much Olympics. I'm excited. There was some uh, national figure skating happening happening over the weekend and it was great i you know i love the olympics but it's and I like want old them. school when we used to have them you know both in the same year that we, we did that yeah. for a long time we did until, it's... until i'm Rem- really showing my age here but <laughs> it reminds uh... me of my youth many 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 years it reminds me ago. of 1984 okay <laughs> yeah exactly when did it change 92 I, we, I changed from we were young Albert we remember Hammer. Lily Hammer? I think Lily, Albertville or Lily Hammer was the first. One of them was just two years after the previous Winter Olympics. I think, I think it might have been those two. This is now a podcast where we just say out, shout out names of Olympic cities from the nineties. That's that's all we're gonna do now. Yeah. Atlanta, Atlanta, yeah. Things we vaguely Nagano. remember from our childhood. <laughs> All right. On today's show, we'll discuss the conference championship games in the NFL, the cardinal sin of kicking field goals, and the future of Aaron Rodgers. We'll also talk about the Baseball Hall of Fame. The final vote tally is expected to be released later today, but but we're pretty sure we know who is, or more likely isn't, getting in. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. 
We're all set now for Super Bowl 55. The Kansas City Chiefs return to defend their title against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Super Bowl enthusiast Tom Brady. The Chiefs and the Bucks beat the Bills and the Packers, respectively, to win the AFC and NFC titles. And one thing united the losers' misfortunes, kicking field goals instead of going for it on fourth down. On ESPN's first take, Ryan Clark blamed Green Bay coach Matt LaFleur for settling for three with two minutes left instead of giving Aaron Rodgers the chance to come through in the clutch. Matt LaFleur took the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands. Here is what happens if Aaron Rodgers gets an opportunity on fourth and eight or on fourth and nine, wherever they were on the field, and they don't get it. Today we walk in and talk about Aaron Rodgers' inability to convert at that opportunity or to make that play in that critical situational football moment. But Matt LaFleur didn't give him the chance. This is like having an opportunity to shoot the technical foul, and instead of putting Steph Curry out there, you put JaVale McGee. He made the wrong decision. He placed his defense back out there that had Kevin King playing for it. If I got a chance to make a play yesterday and one unit has Aaron Rodgers and the other unit has Kevin King, I'm picking the unit that got Aaron Rodgers. So that's on Matt LaFleur. The reason they're back in the game is because of Aaron Rodgers, because he did make plays, because he kept them going, because he kept them in the game. The reason they're in that spot is because of the pass to uh, Valdez Scantling. It's because of the plays he made to get him there. So give him that shot. So let's talk about that NFC title game and that specific play. Green Bay was down by eight. Tom Brady had been playing like the mafia told him at halftime that he needed to throw the game. <laughs> Neil was taking Rodgers off the field, the wrong call. You know, I personally, in my gut, which I know we're not fond of, think that it that it was the wrong call, that they should have gone for it. Um, I think the models, the statistical, you know, win probability models out there thought that it was basically a toss-up. Uh, ben Baldwin has a great fourth-down decision bot uh, that tweets out, uh, you know, anytime there are these decisions that are made and uh, it recommended that uh, they should go for it, that there was a plus 1.3 percentage point change in win probability if they went for it versus uh, kicking the field goal. That's not a big difference. You know, I think it's defensible uh, to do what they did. But in the moment, I think there's a reason why everyone was feeling like um, that, that it just was kind of crazy. Uh, and I know you said on our chat yesterday, Sarah, that uh, you made a great point that it basically worked to perfection if not for that pass interference call or holding or or whatever flop whatever <laughs> we want to call that on on the the um buccaneers third down pass from brady that then essentially gave the game to the um to the bucks but if that had been incomplete or an interception the way brady had been going all second half long then suddenly Matt LaFleur looks like a genius because they've got the three points in their pocket and then they're going for the win on that drive instead of just a tie with with the two-point conversion. They were also getting a lot of three, and uh, I mean, they were getting a lot of stops, you know, uh, the interceptions, obviously, but, you know, the defense was playing well. So you could understand that, it, you know, with all your timeouts, it was a fairly good shot at getting the ball back and then you all of a sudden you don't need a two-point conversion i i I don't know why i'm doing this because i i thought it was a terrible call um when you have aaron Rodgers and you have Devontae adams who's probably like the best receiver in that area of the field in football um i know they had been trying to kind of almost force it to him a lot in other goal line situations earlier in the game and it wasn't working but still i take my chances um and i do think rogers probably regrets not trying to run to that pylon on that play um i don't know if he would have made it yeah i think that's the the bigger problem is that they're not 
Yeah, the bigger problem, I feel like, is that they're not having that conversation. Like, your quarterback should know what you're going to do, what your plan is on whether you have all four downs or not. That that seems that seems like a problem to me. Because if it was a spot decision from LaFleur after he had indicated to Rodgers that they were going to go for it, or they're just not talking about it, that, that seems weird to me. Also, he... Crosby can miss the kick. What if he misses the kick? How bad does LaFleur look there? I mean, like... Although that is baked into the into the decision bot, at least, is the odds that you would miss the kick um, is, mm-hmm. is part of the calculation. Like, But is it baked into the decision bot who plays quarterback for Green Bay and... and- I'm not totally receiver. sure. I think it might no, be, but I'm not completely sure. I don't. I think it's just. You don't think it, so? I don't. But it also isn't. It it's also doesn't then include you know the defense that you're facing and the opposing quarterback you're facing. So here's my hot take: is it was actually the more aggressive call, and I I feel like I think a lot of people's reaction to it is because we are now conditioned. These coaches only go for it. Uh, traditionally have only gone for it at the end of the games. So then when someone doesn't go for it at the end of the game, you think, oh, they're not doing the right thing when in, and and are just like not paying attention to the the math. Like the fourth the Ben Baldwin's um model did have it in the um di- did slightly like going for it. Other models slightly liked kicking the field goal it was very close and that's what's really interesting is like we are now conditioned to think going for it is always the analytically correct uh, move and so i could see people being like almost reacting to the analytics now and hear it when they hear that it's like not that clear cut of a decision or even maybe kicking the field goals right feeling betrayed and being like but the math nerds told us that we should always go for it why are they changing the rules on us when it's like it's actually kind of really dependent on the situation and i think the thing that that made this the thing that made it close was the fact that they had all the timeouts left and, and that they would have backed them up um you know uh that, that they had the opportunity to at least be able to get the ball back and and not have that much time go off the clock i i think you make a good point neil about the like the hyperbole of always going for it to try to get i think you know stats aficionados have used that to try to get coaches to change their behavior. But really, it's like, do what the math tells you in the situation to do. Do the thing that gives you the best chance to win. Well, and I'm not and- sure they have access to the math in the middle of the game. I mean, there uh, a, there's a quality control coach who presumably is tracking this stuff uh, in the moment. But, it, you know, because of prohibitions on having electronic devices on the sidelines as a coach, it's not like you can crunch those numbers in real time. You have to, like, mentally have some sense of even counterintuitive uh, um, cases where the numbers might not match what you think they're going to be. So it's very strange. Like, I think they should let them have a win probability calculator on the sideline. Are we sure they don't on their, like, Surface Pros? Remember that? They like, have everyone the had a Surface Pro? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what would the Jets do if they were in this situation? <laughs> exactly. I think, though, interestingly, that's the problem when coaches aren't aggressive enough too, because they don't want the like heat back on them. Like it's okay to lose close in the NFL. And what we have been saying, you know, as people who believe in using analytics to, to play better is to win. Don't try to win. Don't, don't try to to lose close. I think we'll talk we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the Bills and when their approach to not scoring touchdowns. Which but was even more egregious it in was. that regard. And yet no one is really saying 
I mean, because it know, wouldn't have mattered. I people, think anyway. Yeah, people in my stat echo chamber are saying this, but the the national narrative is not. Oh, the Bills, did, you know, blew it by by choosing three points instead of seven, but. The aggressive call sometimes won't look right. And that's what we as stat believers, <laughs> as believers in, in in win probability, need to be um, making more clear to the general public. Like sometimes things will look weird, but and they go against your intuition from having watched very traditional football for a very long time. But if you're only going for it at the end of the football game, it doesn't mean that you should always go for it at the end of the football game. You certainly should sometimes, but you should also go for it earlier and sometimes make different decisions late. That's that's my big takeaway that we're not we're still not really explaining these things well enough. So that Twitter doesn't erupt from everyone saying, what? What are they doing? Why are they doing that? Oh, they don't they don't want to win. No, they do want to win. Anyway, Bills versus Chiefs. You know, the Bills got up early. Did they think that they could that they would be able to continue to stop Mahomes because they got up early? I think that that first three and out really got in their heads. I mean, <laughs> granted, when they were kicking those field goals, they like the Chiefs had already scored three touchdowns. I mean, except for the first one. Right. The first one, I, I guess that's fine. Get some points, you know, three nothing. Um, but I, it did seem like the, yeah, remember that first three and out? We got this. We got this. Touchdown, 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 touchdown. And then there's like 38 <laughs> points on the board. That's like the Mahomes' new, like, secret mind game strategy. Like, yeah. I'll just throw the ball we like away to a couple do a times. quick three and out just to right. let the defense, you know, maybe kick some field goals because they can stop us. <laughs> Yeah, and if you are the Chiefs, having people kick field goals against you, like baiting them into do that, is like such a win. <laughs> if you have that offense, like you need touchdowns to keep up with them. You don't need field goals. You you need touchdowns to beat the Chiefs. I mean, it, it's pretty simple. Um, the only one that was forgivable was the one where Allen got sacked for like. 35 yeah. yards yeah. and they're like thought, okay maybe yeah. kick this one on that play i like i like i saw the sack but i didn't realize how far back the sack was and i looked up and they were kicking and i was like why are they kicking again oh it's fourth and 38 okay fine um, I, I get that one <laughs> ironically though the only way to beat the chiefs is to do that to the, there's two games this year that when they played the chargers and they played the broncos the second time against the broncos um the Chiefs won both games, but they were both very close games because the Chiefs are, look, they're always going to, like, go down the field to Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey show. But they did stall continually in the red zone and settled for field goals. I think Butker, Butker had five against the the Broncos and, and, and three or four against the Chargers. And those games were really close and they were legitimate scares. So if if you're letting them get in the end zone the way the Bills were, then you have to match that. Yeah. Um, but maybe they it was confidence in their defense, but their defense hasn't even been that good this year. I mean, worse than last year. So, I mean, they've been playing better lately, but it it, it didn't, especially with 4th and 2, 4th and 3, and a quarterback who can, you know, or at least used to run all the time in yeah, those situations. Yeah. If- if we're mad at Rodgers not running, like Josh Allen can can run. He is a mobile I mean, quarterback. Well, I don't know. He was there was one play where he was just frozen in the backfield. Mm-hmm. Like like the game had, you know, like the 
the PlayStation was skipping. Like, he was not moving <laughs> at all. <laughs> I think that's what happened. The PlayStation skipped. <laughs> um, all right. Let, I want to go back to one one previous thing with um, with the the Packers. So Tom Brady now has, you know, vanquished two great quarterbacks in a row, both of whom have made some noise about retiring. Some noises fainter than the other noise. <laughs> Jeff, what do you make of the uncertainty around Rodgers' future? Is there any chance he actually retires now? No. I, I mean, look, there was something breaking this morning that he wants a new contract. And I think it's about that. Uh, I think he, you know, I think he's a very smart guy. Everything he says is deliberate. Um, I, I do think the drafting of love did hurt him on some level and a lot of this MVP campaign was was a reaction to that <laughs> somewhat stemming from that um, interesting motivation <laughs> but no I don't think he's done I think um he's disgruntled for sure um with management and and I I know you know even if he didn't maybe articulate it but you know he used to sort of show this when McCarthy was there that he's probably really really unhappy i mean he kind of articulated really unhappy (laughs) with how that game ended um so that's also baked into that i think the uh possibility of trading him just feels you know with a what is it 31 million dollar cap hit it just doesn't seem to make sense really for the packers at all so i think you know they'll run it back at least one more year maybe with a new deal and then you know at that point you kind of have to make a decision on jordan love and you know we his rookie deal is going to be up and he hasn't played. I know they did that with <laughs> Rodgers, but um, they, they might have to make a decision maybe this time next year if they're if they're out of it again. Uh, a Packer fan I know well is convinced that Rodgers will end up with the Bears, which I think would be the funniest thing possible. Yeah, I mean, to me, like if he did, I, I do think like the 49ers, I think, make the most, most sense. He is from Northern California. They obviously, I think it's clear... They they don't I think they can lose Jimmy G and 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 not get hit with anything so I think they they probably are looking for a quarterback um, that that would make the most sense in the hypothetical world the Niners are the hot place for everyone every quarterback in the in the NFC North Stafford is is could go there like everyone's gonna end up there maybe they'd take. Could they take cousins? That'd be great. <laughs> Between Thanks. them and the Colts, I feel like the Colts should keep their trend of picking up like the twilight years of <laughs> yeah. Hall of Fame caliber quarterbacks and just kind of keep that carousel going. Like Rivers, okay, now let's get Stafford or maybe we'd get Rodgers. Rodgers played in Indy. That would be uh, pretty interesting, I think, also. Let that be the new model. Just cycle through like 38-year-old <laughs> Hall of Fame quarterbacks. I feel like uh, indie fans would take a Rogers upgrade over Rivers, um, even yeah. even even old Rogers. Um, MVP Rogers is uh, is not bad. Okay, so we still have a couple of weeks left before the Super Bowl, but we are going to make our survivor picks for the Super Bowl now, mostly because we argued about them yesterday, and we just need to pick now before we change our minds on the rules yet again. Uh, So last week, Jeff was the only one to actually pick up a win by picking the Chiefs. It's funny, because I I, I learned that. I assumed I took the Packers. (laughs) 
no right yeah right (laughs) no that was a that was a good assumption but no um i took the packers and they they lost thanks for nothing green bay yet again second time this season i bet on the packers well i never learned um and neil lost by picking the bills so the the points stand at me with four and both of you with two so we have a tie for second but based on his regular season points total neil will claim second place Yes. He and I will play for the winner of the survivor pool. Jeff, if you want to make a pick for third place, go for it. But if you lose, then every hot takedown listener will come in third ahead of you. So those are the stakes <laughs> if you choose wrong. This is a little like when you raise like um, a, a tribute to the fans, to the rafters, or, you know, retire the fans number or something like that. Right. Exactly. This one's yep. for the this fans. Is, How can I make a pick with only fans. two teams left? But okay. Well, you could just pick either one well i guess what, no, what if have i to... guess the mvp correctly <laughs> rogers or rogers like or maybe maybe no, the MVP oh, the super bowl, bowl. MVP. oh the super bowl mvp so brady or mahomes um sure you could pick the the super bowl mvp the stakes here are high so you know we have to be very deliberate about about how we choose okay so between me and neil our producer is going to flip a coin for who picks first, because it was determined it was unfair that I had the first pick, um, just going the way we'd gone in the playoffs, which is fine. So heads, I'll go first. Tails, Neil will. Um, and oh, and if someone needs to pick a previously picked team, it's only worth one point, And I will have to do that because I have used both of these teams. I did not mean to use up both of my Super Bowl teams. I did not think Tampa Bay would be in the Super Bowl when I picked them in the first round. Okay, so our wonderful producer, Sarah, is going to flip a coin. Ugh. Fine. So Neil picks first. <laughs> Lame. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid coin flip. Um, I'm intrigued by the Bucks, but I think I'm going to pick the Chiefs. Although I think it's impossible for me to win, right? If you have four and I have two and you get one for the repick and I get two, even if the Chiefs... No, wait. We could but tie. You, you could tie. You, yeah, I can't right, we pick could the tie. Chiefs. Yep. If you can't pick the Chiefs, then we tie. Yep. You can't you can't win. You're going for the tie. You're uh, um... <laughs> tiebreaker is MVP. So each make an MVP pick. So I this is fine, but like if you just can pick the 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 quarterback of the team that you have just picked for like that's not really a The quarterback a doesn't always pick. win. Sure. Um all right, so I've got the Bucks. So, all right, Tom Brady. <laughs> It could be Leonard Fournette. It could be, it could be. We uh, could pick non-QB MVPs and then uh, it will remain a tie forever. uh, The Bucs had a defensive player win MVP when they won the Super Bowl. They did, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, do you want it? Do you want to keep, do you want Mahomes or do you want... Um, I mean, are we picking non-QBs? Like, uh, do I pick a non-QB or... um, No, you can take Mahomes. I yeah, mean, we if can Mahomes pick anyone. is on the table, I'll take Mahomes. But um, yeah, that's yeah. I think that's fine. But I think Jeff's right that I should pick a chief, a non. Yeah, yeah. that's the Completely. that's the smart play. All we right. have such little faith in the Bucks that it's really just a matter of like semantics or, or uh, you know the mechanics of the game as to whether or not we'll <laughs> be allowed to take a uh, a chief <laughs> right. at any p- uh, potential moment. Right, but I won't need. I won't if I if the Bucks win, I'll get that point, so I won't need a tiebreaker. Um, so should I take Tyree Kill or Travis Kelsey? That's really that's really the question that I am left with. Um, you know, Tyree Kill had 200 yards in the first quarter. When the Chiefs and Bucks played in the regular season, 
So it feels like Hill might have a decent game. So I'm, I'm going to go with Tyreek Hill. All right. There's my MVP. Um, we'll, we'll see. how Receivers, we'll see. receivers never win MVP. <laughs> hey, this is the year. I feel it. <laughs> I do not feel it. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see how our Survivor Bowl and also, you know, the Super Bowl. <laughs> More importantly, our survivor pool. More importantly, our survivor pool. San Antonio Holmes Holmes won for the Steelers. And Heinz Ward won, but he threw a touchdown. He threw a touchdown, yeah. Deion Branch won. (laughs) Okay. Let's take a quick break. So this was a great pick by Sarah. (laughs) It's not that common, though. (laughs) All right. We're going to take it. But a quarterback was already off the board. (laughs) This show. This show is ridiculous. Oh, Julian Edelman won. I forgot that. Shut up. I forgot that. All right, you're good. You got a great pick. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be back to talk about the Baseball Hall of Fame. Today at 6 p.m. Eastern, the Baseball Writers Association of America will announce its 2021 ballot results for entry into the Baseball Hall of Fame. This is the first time in a while, though, where the winner of the vote might be no one. Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Kurt Schilling are all nearing the end of their ballot eligibility. They each have one more year after this vote, but they are not expected to gain enough votes for various reasons of character, whether the doping scandals of Bonds and Clemens or Kurt Schilling's political views. On the Athletics Beyond the Scrum podcast, Trent Rosencrans, the new president of the Baseball Writers Association of America, talked about the inherently flawed nature of Hall of Fame voting. You know, I still... Like, I didn't vote for Kurt Schilling for, I guess you could say, the character clause. But yet, I still voted for Barry Bonds, who has had, you know, domestic abuse um, allegations, credible ones. Um, I still voted for Todd Helton, who's had some, you know, alcohol-related transgressions. I voted for people with questionable what we would call characters and and what you you could ding for character clauses. So, again... Yeah, I've been what we call inconsistent and maybe hypocritical. And I know everybody loves to jump on the hypocritical, but it's also, I also think it's, uh, it's human, you know, we're flawed individuals, our thinking's flawed, and it's not always going to be consistent. And I, I, I basically did what I thought I could, I could live with. And um, I don't think there's a right answer. I think there's my answer. So what do we think about Schilling, Bonds, and Clemens missing the cut this year? Jeff, how do we reconcile the Hall of Fame-worthy careers these guys had with their off-the-field conduct? It's tough. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think it's broken in many ways, the whole the whole thing, once once we started factoring in the PEDs and it kind of opened the door to, to really everything. I mean, you know, look, if, if I was voting, um, which I'm not, I, I would probably vote for Bonds and Clements because I, I do think there should be a distinction made between PED use in the sort of pre-testing era versus PED use, you know, since, which would obviously, you know, apply to someone like Alex Rodriguez, you know, who was actually suspended um, for that kind of thing. Um, whereas, you know, to sort of 
not really have the rules in place and then retroactively sort of make the decision that these guys weren't worthy. And also, you know, frankly, you can look at Bonds's career and I've said this numerous times, like there's a very clear point in his career where he started using and prior to that point, he was already Hall of Fame worthy. So to me, that's a no brainer. But this is just going to get messier and messier as we get more and more guys with, you know, more complicated histories. Next year, I believe, is David Ortiz. That's a really tricky one because he failed that uh, 2003 survey test, which is the reason Sammy Sosa is probably not in the Hall of Fame for failing the same test. So, you know, but David Ortiz has a way better reputation and he's way more popular and he's way more you know, of a fun guy than, than Sammy Sosa. So we'll see, you know, when, when these writers make their decisions. With the case of Schilling, I mean, I personally am not going to vote for a guy who's out there calling Dr. Fauci a Nazi and all the things he says. Um, that's, I just don't think I could like look myself in a mirror because I don't think the guy Hall of Fame baseball player should be next to that guy's name, but that, that would be a personal decision. I think it's a really slippery slope to start. I mean, we look back, I mean, Ty Cobb, it was basically a homicidal maniac. You know, Cap Hansen's in the Hall of Fame. This guy, like, refused to play against black players. He was, like, famous racist. I mean, we don't want to go back and start looking at the character issues of all the guys who are in there currently, you know, and, and you could argue, you know, along the same lines, though. I mean, I, I think you are entitled to not vote for this person because you don't want this person in that museum. That's fine, you know, and and frankly, Barry Bonds's sort of domestic violence history is, is to me, more troubling um, than the actual PD use, which I think at the point he was using, it was widespread and ubiquitous in the game. So, yeah, I feel the same way about Clemens and his like like very creepy relationship with you know when yeah, with Mindy McCready too. when she was a teenager. Like, I mean, we've sort of gone beyond like the baseball adjacent scandals, right? Like PED use is going to be a thing that we deal with for a while with these guys now who are coming up, like Ortiz, like A Rod, but other things kind of threaten that too. We know more about players personal lives now than we ever have that the stuff that used to be kind of covered up just isn't anymore um that stuff is all in the news so do we do we require more of hall of famers do we require them to be better people you know the the hall, hall of fame does no longer they, they've they've changed who they honor um Kennesaw landis is no longer doesn't have his name on that trophy anymore. I mean, that's because of his racism. Like those things are, they're being re kind of litigated. And I'm not sure what to do with that. I mean, I kind of take the opposite perspective where I feel like it should be, first of all, the character clause and all this stuff, There, there is this underlying like hero worship uh, around players, you know, the, the fact that we enshrine them and then treat them like they're, you know, not just better players than everyone else, but better people in a way that I think is not appropriate. Like all these guys are human beings and they had flaws and uh, in many cases, big flaws. Uh, really, the the purpose of the Hall of Fame we need to kind of figure out what that is. Like, it's a museum that tells the history of baseball, but does it need to tell it in this kind of hagiographical fashion where we sort of pump up all these guys? Because in every single case, but particularly to your point, Sarah, about now the guys that we know more about their lives, they're going to fall short of sainthood or anything approaching that. So in my opinion, it should be only about their performance on the field. Give them a plaque. 
put them in the Hall of Fame, but maybe not even invite them to give a speech. Maybe not even invite them to have this celebration of them as as some kind of like moral, you know, figures beyond uh, uh, just regular humans that had flaws, but happened to be really good at at this thing that uh, we've kind of arbitrarily decided is something that we should all be interested in. Like on the basis of performance, Kurt Schilling is a Hall of Famer. And so is Barry Bonds and so is Roger Clemens. And I think you can either take two perspectives. You can try to kind of parse out everyone's personal lives and try to, you know, make determinations about uh, whether, you know, they they are of some kind of character that deserves to be in the Hall of Fame as well or not. And then that really does open up. It's a very slippery slope for future guys. It opens up a lot of questions in a can of worms about the previous uh, people in there as well. Or you could just say, look, it's about the performance on the field. We don't have to pretend these guys are great people and we don't have to honor them as though they were great people and ask them to give a speech and ask them you know to do all this stuff they're in a museum about baseball history because they were great baseball players and that's that you know why why do we have to sort of pretend that you know all of these implications about you know uh bonds is domestic violence and and uh steroid use and shillings political views and all these things these all come from this like presupposition that hall of famers should be better people than the rest of us and i just reject that uh, they just happen to be really good at baseball and that's that i think that's that's a really good point but i think the problem is if you if you give barry bonds a plaque you're just sort of ignoring right the the domestic violence stuff stuff that like you're saying that his baseball was more important than you know whether he he kicked and punched um his ex-wife like and and that's i mean i think this is where we are as a society right like how do we separate any of this well for the purposes of a of a baseball museum I, saying that someone was really good at baseball, like, I, I don't know. I just, uh, you know, if you're you're kind of pulling in things that are non-baseball related into a museum about baseball, I don't know. I mean, that's sort of part of the problem is right. where does it end? Because, and again, uh, to, to, the, to the take, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on, right? Like, Ortiz mm-hmm. is going to make the Hall of Fame because we like him. And he did steroids, but we're going to leave out Bonds and Clemens, putting even aside, because you know that the reason that they're not in the Hall of Fame right now has nothing to do with violence against women. It has to do with the fact that they use steroids, and people see that as an affront to the game. But And we don't like them, so they're not in the Hall of Fame, and they probably won't be, and we like guys like Ortiz, and so he will be. So there's a lot of hypocrisy there anyway. Do you think Todd Helton should be in? He, uh, thin air, I don't know, you know? <laughs> inflated his numbers the climate i mean i think i'm on the record saying helton should be too but i don't think that's part of this conversation <laughs> i know it's <I'm> joking <laughs> right i mean look i think this is this is why this is hard right because we we have a hard time separating out anything from you know it, we're into the point now where we see people like we see all sides of people and we have a hard time with that from every perspective i mean it's why it it, it you know, it's why some people would like athletes to not take political stances because we want to focus on the sport part of it. I think so in the same way that we are are seeing the political and you know full person, um, par- the full person of these athletes in positive lights, we're also seeing it in negative lights. And it really depends on your own perspective. Right. And and the line there is really hard, I think, because. 
how do you where do you draw that there are clear things you would say you know this person did something so like if someone after their baseball career you know committed a heinous crime um you know there are there are things people could do that we would say we don't want them in the hall right neil well is oj simpson in the pro football hall of fame i think he is but he got in before all before all that. <laughs> before, before all of but that. But again, I mean, that's the question. Should we kick O.J. Simpson out of the Pro Football Hall of Fame? I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we also don't care as much about the Pro Football Hall of Fame <laughs> as we do God. about the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is Speak really for yourself, Sarah. I really am yeah, interested sure, sure. in what the voters say on Super Bowl morning. Is the actual, like, takeaway here sort of what you said, Neil, about, you know, venerating people? Should we just not have Halls of Fame? Like, the stats speak for themselves. We know that players were good or bad. Like, why do we even have a Hall of Fame? We should have we should have no heroes. That is that is honestly my takeaway of the last decade. Don't pe- put people on pedestals or well, in plaques up on walls. I think like a weird reverse is happening, you know, with Scott Rowland, where it's just like, well, look, he's got no scandals. He There's was a no good problems. guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing There's is we're not going to put guys. Right. We're not going to put guys in because they were good guys if they were borderline Hall of Fame candidates. But we're you know removing people who have the the resume of a hall of famer because of character things which is another sort sort of inconsistency or hypocrisy you know along the same lines maybe all these writers who are like you know what i'm not gonna do this anymore i'm gonna give up my vote like jeff passon did more and more writers have been giving up their vote in this because it's not really it's not not it's 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 not fun anymore but it's also maybe just not a good idea anymore maybe that's maybe that's the takeaway I don't know. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it was, I think as much as anything, it was originally like an exercise in self-aggrandizement by not just the players, but also by the writers as being the sole arbiters of, you know, who should be enshrined in this. And I, I think that, yeah, you're right, Sarah, that now we have a lot better numbers. We have a lot better understanding of who contributed to their team's success or, or lack thereof. Um and so, yeah, we don't necessarily need one. Now, I mean, is there a place for a museum of the game to tell the story of the game? I kind of think there is. I mean, there there's a lot of cool stuff in the Hall of Fame beyond the plaques of the players who are enshrined there. There's items, there's objects that are cool to kind of see, and you can see how the game changed. And so, you know, maybe we should be focusing on that and not the um, the, the players who are enshrined there, you know? Yeah, I I like that. I think that's that's a good idea. Um, I did not think that I was going to come away from today's show saying, "Hey, abolish the baseball hall of fame," and yet here we are. Museum Defund only. Defund the hall of fame. <laughs> Defund the hall of fame. <laughs> All right, listeners, you probably already know what happened with the hall of fame as you're hearing this podcast. Hopefully, we we got it all right. We're going to take a break, and then in our rabbit hole of the week, we'll talk about some players we sure were hall of famers. At 5.38, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. What do you have for us, Neil? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's been a really difficult year for everyone. It's been a difficult year for sports. But I think no sport has been hit harder just by the sheer number of great players that were lost over the past year than baseball. Uh, our friend Howard Megdahl uh, wrote a story on December 30th, 2020, about all of the, the great players who died during the calendar year of 2020. Uh, he even put together a near Hall of Fame uh, lineup uh, of players who had who had died over that span that included Joe Morgan at second base, Dick Allen at third base, Tony Fernandez at short, Lou Brock, Jimmy Wen and Al Kaline in the outfield, and of course a pitcher Tom Seaver, Bob Gibson, Phil Necro, Whitey Ford, Don Larson. Uh, just an incredible number of great players who, who passed away in the last year. And if we thought that 2021 would kind of bring an end to that. We were wrong. I think we could all anticipate that we would be wrong in thinking that, but still it doesn't make it any easier. Just in the last several weeks, we lost Don Sutton, uh, who was also a Hall of Fame pitcher. And of course, the biggest one, I think the one that hurt the most of all, for me particularly, was the loss of Hank Aaron last week, who really needs no introduction. He was the all-time home run king for three decades, broke Babe Ruth's all-time record uh, under a tremendous amount of duress and and uh, racism that he faced at the time. And he, he was just one of the most gracious people. I got a chance to meet him uh, on, a, on a class tour of Turner Field when I was in school, and he just was everything that that I expected him to be and then some when he spoke with us and so just a wonderful person and a really 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 great player I think sometimes even though he was the all-time home run king which is baseball's most venerated record somehow Hank Aaron was underrated uh, I think when we talk about the all-time inner circle great players we talk about Babe Ruth we talk about Ted Williams you know we talk about Willie Mays who was one of the contemporaries of Hank Aaron um, and we talk about people like Mickey Mantle and, and people like that but Mickey Mantle himself said Hank Aaron was the best player of his era which I think is a pretty big compliment and pretty accurate if you think about it uh, and one of the things that I looked at when I was looking at um, Hank Aaron's stats last week was just trying to capture the consistency that he put together because he never hit more than 47 home runs in a season, yet somehow broke Babe Ruth's record for all-time home runs and even added to it and had over 750 in his uh, career before all was said and done. That takes a tremendous amount of consistency year in and year out to be able to to break that record without having the crazy season. Even Barry Bonds, when he did break Hank Aaron's record, he had a 70 home run season. He had, you know, this like eye-popping record-setting um, performance for at least one year and, of course, had many other great years around that. Hank Aaron didn't challenge Babe Ruth's single-season record, which was later broken by Roger Maris, but... Uh, he, he just was metronome-like in his consistency from year to year. Uh, and, and that goes for home run hitting. So he had 19 consecutive years where he hit at least 24 home runs. 
which is wild. I know 24 is a little bit of a, uh, an arbitrary cutoff. It's not a uh, nice round number, but he also is the all-time leader in 20 home run seasons. He did that 20 times, so he had at least 20 home runs 20 different times, but he also hit uh, at least 24 19 times in a row. These were all kind of part of the same streak in his career from the mid-50s to the early to mid-70s. No other player in the history of baseball ever had even 15 straight seasons with at least 24 home runs you know, stacked back to back to back against each other. And of course, Aaron was more than just a power hitter. He won two batting titles. He also won one MVP. I think he should have probably won more. Uh, I was surprised that he had only won the one. He had over 300 in his career. That's second only to Babe Ruth in terms of career average for players in the 600 home run club, which is a pretty exclusive club, but he was one of the better uh, average hitters on top of being, you know, in this group of already great power hitters. He also won three gold glove awards and uh, the metrics kind of back up the the fact that he was one of the best right fielders in the league. And then he shifted to left field and first base and still held his own there. One of the, one of my favorite Aaron stats was that he has the all-time record for most all-star seasons uh, and all-star games also. So he was an all-star in 21 different seasons, which is crazy. It, it, it doesn't need to be said, but most players don't even make one all-star game. He was an all-star in 21 different seasons and made 25 all-star games because in the late 50s and early 60s, they actually had multiple all-star games in the same season, which was a little fun. Maybe a little way to juice your, your all-star game tally and get up to that 25. But even if they only had one, he would have been named to an all-star uh, game in 21 different seasons. And so th- these things all kind of came together to to show that Hank Aaron was really baseball's king of consistency. If you look at the most consecutive seasons of four wins above replacement, five wins above replacement, even six wins above pro- replacement, he had six war in uh, 15 consecutive seasons, six or more war. Many times he exceeded that and got up into the sevens or even uh, the eight. No other player in baseball history can say that. The closest anyone came was Willie Mays. He had 13 straight seasons uh, of six or more wins above replacement. Lou Gehrig had 12 straight and then uh, Barry Bonds and Walter Johnson each had 10 straight seasons of at least uh, six or more war. Uh, But it really speaks to the consistency. So Babe Ruth, for instance, he would have been close to that if not for one particular season, the 1925 season when he suffered the famous uh, bellyache all season long and he was limited to under four wins above replacement, limited to 98 games. He hit 25 home runs that season, so he kind of kept a streak of 25 home run seasons going. But, you know, it's really easy for even a player as great as Babe Ruth to 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 have one off season in the middle of their run uh and and not be able to kind of keep up that that stretch but Hank Aaron in the middle of his prime really never even played uh, fewer than 140 or 145 games in any season during his his prime stretch of years and he was uh, not uh, playing fewer than like 120 even as like a 40 year old so it really was a testament to Aaron's ability to be in the lineup yes it wasn't like a Cal Ripken Jr. of playing every single day but he played the majority of days the vast majority of days and only took a handful of days off uh, per season for more than two straight decades and over that span he was consistent in his just ability to hit home runs and, and put up those 30 home run 40 home run seasons just year in year out you could sort of set your set your clock to uh, you know his ability to to have those types of years and so I think that 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 was the secret to him being able to break that hallowed record uh and and also just the 
the mental strength that he showed as he was approaching the record and the fact that people were sending him an estimated 3,000 letters per day at the peak of the record chase. And most of them were not uh, good good letters. They were not uh, encouraging letters. Many of them carried death threats and just disgusting amounts of hate that he said changed him as a person you know he he was not and i don't think anybody could be prepared for that especially when he was playing early on in milwaukee you know he said he loved living there and and he felt embraced by the community and then the Braves moved from Milwaukee to Atlanta and the the South really was still in the throes of, you know, the civil rights era and, and Jim Crow and all of these things. It was a time of a lot of upheaval and a lot of people uh, still did not think that black players should be even given a chance to play in the major leagues, much less excel. And so, you know, the, the fact that he was able to do that, and I know people have, you know, there, there were some bad tweets that were put out last week of, uh, saying that Hank Aaron ignored racism uh, along the way. He didn't ignore it. I mean, that's part of the point was that he was very full aware of the hate that was being sent in his direction and the very real threats against his life. And he still was able to, you know, perform at an incredibly high level. And I think it just takes uh, an amount of fortitude that I don't think any of us can can really um, even understand, but we can't appreciate it from afar. And so, you know, we talked earlier about the Hall of Fame, how it's not a monument to great people necessarily. But I think in the case of Hank Aaron, I mean, he was a Hall of Famer's Hall of Famer, and that goes for his play, but also for who he was as a person. So um, he'll be missed. And yeah, it was uh, I I think that um, the baseball world of all the losses of the past year, I think the loss of Aaron was the greatest of all you know there would have been there were always going to be some people who didn't want Babe Ruth's record to be broken and wouldn't have wouldn't have been cheering for him which in and of itself that sucks like we should want people yeah and Roger Maris went through that in in his own way in 1961 as he was fighting with Mickey Mantle and also fighting with Babe Ruth. But um, I think Hank Aaron had the extra element of racism on top of that. And we saw that Roger Maris, I mean, when when he went through it, even as a white man, he it kind of ruined his health, uh, you know, that year. And he, um, you know, lost a bunch of pounds, lost a bunch of hair. And, and it was like very visible what the strain was. Uh, and what Hank Aaron went through was on just a totally different magnitude even from that. I was uh, I was looking at the, I was shocked by the same thing Neil that he only won one MVP. Yeah, that was very surprising. Um, but if you look at the vote, I mean, he received votes for MVP basically his entire career and finished in the, I think the top the top five six different times. So he was kind of just always there in the running. It just it's a testament to how consistent he was. Yeah, and he finished in the top three in uh, 1971 at the age of 37. And uh, the first time that he finished in the top three was in 1956 at the age of 22. I don't think many players can say that they that they were top three MVP candidates both at the age of 22 and at the age of 37. And I think that says volumes about um, his his longevity and of course all those many finishes high in the mvp uh, voting in between you know it's not like it was just bookends of a career either yeah so we'll celebrate we'll celebrate the the legend of of hank aaron for a long time obviously all right that will do it for this week's show thank you so much we will be back in your feed next tuesday if you like what you heard please subscribe and if you are subscribed please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts it helps new people discover the show you can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Metlin. 
For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.